If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 202 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Jane Bozarth, a very well-known writer, speaker, and practitioner in the world of learning and development. Jane is indeed someone with whom many of our listeners may already be familiar. I first met her many years ago when she was e-learning coordinator for the state of North Carolina, which, of course, is Leading Learning's home state. She's more recently moved on to be the Director of Research for the eLearning Guild, where I'm sure a number of our listeners are members, and she's the author of multiple books, including most recently, Show Your Work, The Payoffs and How-Tos of Working Out Loud. Beyond her substantial professional credentials, Jane is one of those people who's just always out there walking the walk, sharing her experiences and knowledge, and helping other people grow. And You know, I think that's probably the best thing that can be said about a learning and development professional, and I'm certainly thrilled to have Jane here to help our listeners learn and grow. Speaking of learning and growing, we noted in the last episode that we're going to begin offering a reflection question or two to go along with each episode, and we'll always include those reflection questions in the show notes, and you can always find the show notes by going to leadinglearning.com slash episode number. So that means that show notes for this episode are available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 202. Now, you can consider these reflection questions on your own after listening to an episode, and or you might pull your team together and use part or all of the podcast episode to give you some common ground and some shared terminology for a group discussion. So, Jeff, what do you suggest we listen for during this episode? Well, first, listen to the areas Jane is covering with some of the current and recent research that the eLearning Guild is doing. She's tackling some areas that have come in for really a lot of scrutiny, in some cases outright criticism lately, and these are issues like learning styles, personality inventories, and generational differences. So, As you listen, consider how your learning business is addressing these issues and to what extent your conversations and actions are really evidence-based. And then next, Jane and I talk at some length about the whole concept of showing your work, which of course she wrote a book about. And so we discuss, you know, what it is, why it matters, how to do it. And as you listen to that discussion, ask yourself to what extent showing your work is a common practice in your organization and among the learners you serve. And then ask what value might come from making this a more widely embraced practice and what are some of the initial steps you might want to take to make it happen. Well, those are great points to keep in mind as we roll the interview with Jane Bozar. Hey there, I'm Jeff Cobb. This is the Leading Learning Podcast. And for this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jane Bozarth. Jane, welcome to Leading Learning. Thanks so much for having me back, Jeff. It's been a long time. It's been far too long since we connected and and had a good uh, conversation. So I'm really looking forward to this. One of the things that's Happened in the meantime, I mentioned, you know, that we first encountered each other when you were working for the state of North Carolina. You have since shifted to the e-learning guild. I I think that was probably about a a year and a half ago or so. Is that about right? Yep. Yep. 
And so, you know, I'm wondering, you know, you were in this position of being a coordinator for a, a government, uh, basically, um, developing learning experiences. You're now in this research role. Um, what was that transition like? And, and maybe, you know, kind of going to the heart of some of what we'll be talking about today. How did you get up to speed? How, how did you make that transition? Well, um, you know, the, the short story is I worked for the state a very long time. And one day I woke up and realized, and realized I had all these years of service and I had all of this uh, extra leave time built up that I had never taken. And when you added all those things together, I was suddenly eligible for my pension. So I'm not crazy all the way. So I decided I would take take that and run. So I was able to retire. I mean, it's not it's not a million dollars a year, but it's you know it's okay, and I get health insurance. So I decided to take that, and um, because it, staying wasn't going to get me anything much more out of it, and I had kind of done what I could do with the state, and so I um, I let it be known to to a number of, you know, businesses and the media companies that I was probably going to be leaving that role. And I, uh, several of them stepped up and made offers and, you know, the guild uh, called me and they had this wonderful opportunity for a director of research, which was very, very different than what I had been doing, but I've also was trained for it. I mean, I do have a doctorate and I had done all of those course, that coursework and research. So it was, um, Honestly, well, for one thing, I was way too young to be retired. I was never just going to sit home. I'm, it's right. crazy um, that you know it just the, the math just worked out for me to be able to go ahead and take my state uh, pay, payment. But um, but it, it's very different than what I was doing. But it's also right in my wheelhouse. It's a very nice change of pace. I had spent more than two decades. You know, it was it was fine, and I got a lot done, and I enjoyed it. But it's a relief not to feel like I have to sit and argue all day long about implementing a new technology, about why we don't want to just build another course with the next. But you know, it's not, it's a really nice change of pace for me. So I, it's it's really in my wheelhouse. I have new things to explore every month. I get to learn new stuff all the time. I get to explore a lot of what's going on with new and emerging technologies, which I was always really interested in. But I don't then also have to go sell them to any. Anybody, right. right? I can just write about them and say, "Look at this cool thing and how we're probably going to use it." It may be ten years, and that's fine. So it's um, it has been a really wonderful um, uh, transition for me. It was not hard, and and I need to be clear. I I had a really good ride with the state. I think that people who know me will attest to that. I I think in many ways the state gets a bad rap. I had uh, a lot of opportunity there. I got a lot of interesting things done. I had a lot of support. Um, and I don't know that what went on with government was any any worse or or more bureaucratic than what I hear my friends in the private sector deal with a lot of times. I mean, it seems like uh, we all have kind of similar challenges and, and struggles. So I had a, a really good ride with them. And now I'm having a great ride with the Guild. They're good folks to work for. I especially am proud of the work that they are doing with their Guild for Good initiative, where they are trying to put good out into the world and trying to encourage and support community members who are interested in charity. Or, or other kinds of good works. They do an award every year. Um, I'm going to be part of part of that this year. So I'm really um, I'm really pleased to be associated with the with the guild. They're real good folks. That well, was that's, probably a way longer answer than you wanted. I'm sorry. No, that's that's great, and we'll <laughs> definitely be sure to to, to link to uh, Guild for Good in the, in the show notes because uh, folks should know about that. That's fantastic. I'll say I am. 
I am flat out jealous, uh, envious, as I'm sure many listeners are, that uh, that you can even use the word pension in talking about yes. your life. Because, well, uh, well, you know, that's that's the thing. I, there is an offset with salary. I mean, I have friends who probably ultimately made a lot more per year than I did, but I get health insurance and a pension till I die. I mean, you have mm. to make a decision, and and I am lucky that I was in that situation. I don't think they're actually offering that to new hires anymore. I think new hires. Maybe there's still some retirement payment. Now, I pay into that. I mean, it's not like they just handed me the money. I paid into it all that time. Right, but, right. Um, but it's not like matching 401k or anything. But, um, right. but, but I mean, there is a trade-off, and I chose to make that one. Um, and I'm really lucky. I have a feeling that's not an opportunity available to very many people, certainly not in the future. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So so now you're in this world of the the e-learning guild. Um, so what, what I, I know a little bit about what you've been focused on, but I don't know that uh, learners will. So what's what's been some of your recent research and what's what's coming? Well, so uh, I, my my basic tab, my job mostly. Um, there are a few assorted duties as assigned, but mostly my job is to create um, a, a research report and publish it every month. Mm. And in the, in the past, uh, it has been the guild's habit to do a salary report about every January. So we did that this year. Um, sometimes I work on things that are tied to upcoming events. For instance, we have a Realities 360 conference that in the past has been in June and. Uh, San Jose, I believe it's going to be associated with learning solutions in March next year. But it's about AR and VR and those and mixed realities uh, in in learning and development. And so the report we did a report about that a couple of months out. We have DevLearn coming up in October, and Megan Torrance and I are uh, mostly Megan Torrance uh, are working on a report on the current state of XAPI because we're about seven years out now. It should be hitting some maturity. We want to see what people are you know are doing with it, and then she will be presenting about that at DevLearn uh, about her findings. So sometimes it's tied to an event or something that we're working on. Sometimes it is just general population interest. Last year, I did 10,000 words on the, the issue of learning styles mm. and whether, whether teaching to learning styles is uh, has any value? The answer is no. And then recently we did, um, I did a report on the, uh, personality type inventories, which are very popular in our right. business, as you know. And I think probably we'll be doing generations in a few, um, in a few months. I don't know yet when, I don't think it's on the schedule yet. So, uh, sometimes if we have an expert doing something interesting, we will ask them if they want to, to write it or work with me to write it. So Will Tallheimer is currently very interested in changing the way we do evaluations. Right. He's on a big, big train about smile sheets. So he did an evaluation report for us, uh, last fall. Um, Steve Foreman did a report for us on the different learning platforms. People are moving past just needing an LMS. I mean, we've got mm -hmm. challenge management systems. We've got social management says we get so he did a report on that so it it is partly community interest partly uh, stuff that is on our our event schedule stuff that personally is of interest to me and they vary sometimes we do a survey uh, sometimes I do like with learning styles and personality types I did uh, a very uh, deep dive into the literature uh, Megan is doing that's going to be a survey based thing on XAPI sometimes when I write about for instance AR VR 
we did a survey on that, but we knew going in that we didn't have a lot of users already adopting that technology. I mean, it's kind of high-end stuff. Right. So that's partly survey and partly Jane talking about, well, this is what some companies are doing. Right, right. Uh, so it's it's a mix of stuff. And that also keeps it really interesting for me that we're not just cranking out the same thing month after month. It's been, it's really, it's really interesting work. I'm open um, to suggestions, although I find when I ask that, I often have people want to hear about things they could Google. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, how long does yeah. it take to produce this? Or how much should that cost? I'm like, yeah. well, I can go look that up for you, but it's not really a 25-page report. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I, I know for a fact that we have um, people listening, certainly people in our audience who are definitely interested in where VR and AR are going. So they're going to be interested in perspectives on that. We definitely have people who are interested in um, XAPI and you know where that's uh, going at this point. Uh, do, you do you have any uh, preliminary commentary on, on that? I, I don't. We closed the survey on the 9th and I sent the raw data to Megan and I haven't really even looked at it. Um, what we wanted from that survey, we wanted to hear from people who are using it and also, also from people who are not. We are mm. curious to hear what the barriers are, whether people um, have adopted, how they got prepared for it. So no, I'm afraid I, don't, I didn't really look at it because I get myself real biased real fast. But um, well, you know, so I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping we did hear from people who are not using it. I, I worried a little when we sent the survey around, although we did say that's what we wanted, that people who were not using for whatever reason didn't respond to us. I'm very interested in that because believe it or not, it has been like seven, seven years. Yeah, it's amazing how long it has been out there. And, and it's yeah, and it's a little unclear to me. I, I know with a lot of the, um, the technology vendors that we uh, interface with in the association sector and some of these market-facing type platforms, they're not necessarily adopting it. Of course, uh, it took them a long time to do SCORM as well. Right. So it's going to be an interesting area. Right. I, I will note, I think um, I love that you noted that the e-learning guild often ties or you know complements uh, research with events and or vice versa. I think that's I think that's such a great strategy and something that uh, listeners here could could definitely pick up on. And and one thing I do present at all of the events and generally uh, that takes the form of of me and if if I have any guest authors who are on around at the event because they often are we will we will each take fifteen maybe fifteen or twenty minutes of an hour session and talk about the most recent thing we've done. I mean we're trying to drive people to read the report. Reports mm. in at length, but so for instance at DevLearn it will be me talking about um, some things from the salary report, and I'll say more about that in a minute. Megan talking about XAPI and Julie Dirksen who did a recent report on what works in in e-learning for uh, with AR and VR. Uh, what happened with the salary report? My predecessor had done a really good, amazing, amazing in-depth work with really extensive data about our membership and their salary, uh, who was making what, what geographical regions made what, what people were doing in terms of bonuses, what people, it was very in-depth. And I, I felt like looking through the data that she had had from, from that year, it was a year before me, there was so much she didn't have room for, or there were so many things we could explore. So rather than just do the survey again, I basically took the data she had and looked for things that maybe she had not talked about much or talked about things that had not been elaborated on in her lengthy report. And and the thing that really came to light was how much the instructional design role has changed in the last decade. Mm. 
that when you looked at what people were getting paid to do, who called themselves ID, whatever that means. Right. For one thing, we don't know what that means right. anymore. I mean, we were talking about people who sat down and wrote a course and maybe did it in Articulate or something and launched it. Now we're talking about people who are, are building apps. They're trying to learn about AR. They're trying to learn about VR. They're doing multimedia work. Um, the, the, the job has expanded so much that to just say we're going to look at salary becomes much more difficult. Um, so I, I then went and took a look at uh, several hundred job postings for what that's worth for the public companies, things I could access publicly, monster.com, LinkedIn, some companies in uh, the UK and in Europe. And, and overall, it seems like we have really lost sight of what that role is. I mean, we're defined, we don't have clear definitions of what an ID does. We don't have clear demarcations between level one and level two or initial and senior level. We don't really define d designer versus developer. And I think that there's some conversation to be had there that I hope we can get the group interested in when I talk about it at DevLearn. Uh, one thing I want to be sure I say, since I've been on board and I didn't do this, <laughs> the guild did this, the, the reports are now free um, with a free membership. So right. you, you do have to log in to get them, but you don't have to pay. I mean, mostly we just want to see where they're getting downloaded. We promise not to come to your house and annoy you. But um, the reports are free now, which I think is fabulous. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that because, uh, I mean, there probably are a lot of listeners here who are actually paying members of the eLearning Guild. But um, if, if you are not at least a, a free member of the eLearning Guild, and, and I, don't, you know, I don't care what role you're playing in your organization, if you're in a learning business, it's worth being at least a free member of the eLearning Guild. Like you said, you can get these research reports and we'll be sure to to link to everything you've mentioned here I, I think the the issue of the instructional design role is very interesting because there's just there is a lot of confusion um, and not a lot of consensus at this point around what it actually means when you say instructional designer <laughs> right well and and when you start talking about the salary range that explains why the salary range in the United right. States goes everywhere from 30,000 to 90. Yeah. For the same, I mean, that's crazy. It's just crazy. If you're looking for well-defined instructional design and a great learning platform to go with it, we encourage you to check out our sponsor. CompartNers helps learning businesses conceive, develop, and fulfill their online education strategy. Their solutions begin with Elevate LMS, an award-winning learning platform that provides a central knowledge community and drives learner engagement. To extend the value of Elevate, CompartNers provides a wide range of online education services, including curriculum design, instructional design, fully managed webinars, webcasts, live stream programs, and virtual conferences. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash compartners. And now back to the interview as Jane talks about research as the basis for better conversations. Another thing I should say about the, the research, particularly about things like the personality inventories and the learning styles, one of the things I want and one of the reasons I'm so pleased that they've made this stuff free is I want to help put some of the academic work in the hands of people who maybe don't have access to that mm -hmm. or maybe uh, don't have time to sit and sift through a thousand articles about, <laughs> about the Myers-Briggs right. um, test. But, but I also am writing it with an eye toward 
here is what you need to go have better conversations. Mm. When people say, we've got this problem, why don't you do a team building workshop? We've got this problem, why don't you just adapt it to everybody's learning styles? Right. And trying to help people not just be able to spew back, oh, well, the validity says da-da-da, the T-test was that. I'm trying to help give people real conversations and maybe some alternatives because there are some out there um, to, to what we've been doing. So, you know, it's not just meant to be egghead and here's yeah. what – Here's what 17 theorists said. So I'm, I'm hoping we have achieved that. I've had, I've had really good feedback on those. It's interesting. We did the personality types thing, I guess, two months ago now. Every single person who has contacted me about it has said that they need additional help convincing management not to go do this for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Every yeah, well, one of them. I, I think that's so important because, uh, you know, I know we've, at, at Leading Learning and through Tagoras have, have published things over the past you know year or two, particularly about learning styles, which has always just been sort of a, a fly in my ointment and, you know, and trying to make sure people know that, um, that, they, that they don't matter, you know, at, at least not in the yes. way that they've been talked about yes. historically. But then, but then there is a question, okay, so what do we do now? Um, yes. And the same thing with uh, personality inventories. Um, I'll be interested to, I, I don't know what perspectives you have on generations at this point, but I'm always hearing, you know, millennials do this and Gen X does that. And that, that, that always gets at me a little bit as, as well. Um, so any, I think anything that leads to, to more productive, uh, conversations and to some, you know, some concrete actions, cause these, these concepts, uh, or these practices all point at things that are legitimate concerns, um, that, that do need to be addressed in some way. And, uh, we've just got to get to a point where we can address them more meaningfully. Well, and I've ended both of those with what you can do instead, how you can have different conversations, how this can be more productive. And I, I in the learning styles, when I quote Kathy Moore, who says it better, better than I'm about to, but she said, you know, you can't really win an argument with somebody who feels they're operating from a moral imperative. If right. they've made up their minds that we're doing this to help these learners and it's going to make life, I mean, you, you can't just sit there and arm wrestle and yell. So, you know, finding other ways to have more productive conversations and other approaches. And, you know, just to be clear, because your listeners, I'm sure, are probably people who are in HR shops or in other shops where they are, in fact, using personality inventories. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I don't take a, a, a umbrage <laughs> at the idea that people do. I think that they're fun. I think if you've got a, a you know a staff retreat and you want to talk about your differences, it's fine. It's when it sort of turns culty and religiousy, and right. you know somebody's not getting a job because of it. People are being blamed for a performance problem because they're not some some ridiculous type pulled out of you know like astrology pulled out of a book. I mean, I, I don't. I, I, I think they have they have their place, and most people will say, but they're fun, and we get what we want. Well, that's fine with me. But when it gets to be other stuff, and I have mm -hmm. seen it go bad, I've seen it go evil. One thing that was interesting in that research, one of my favorite things about this job is when I'm looking stuff up that I think I know a lot about, right? I've done this for years, is when I find something that's a real surprise to me. There's a whole body of literature on what they call the dark traits, Huh. of nar narcissism and Machiavellian behaviors right, is really right. kind of interesting, you know, because all the personality type stuff is so positive, right? They never say you're bad at something. They never say you're evil and you're, you know, everybody hates you and nobody wants to work with you, right? They all say positive. You can be challenging, but decisive, right? Right. <laughs> so this dark side stuff I found quite, quite entertaining because it's all about the psychopathology of your coworkers is great. So. That's funny. I do feel like I was seeing quite a bit about narcissism for a while there. Uh, it seemed to be kind of a, a meme out there. Well, let's, um, 
let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, we're definitely not not getting too far afield from where we have, have already been here. But you know, I in our exchange before this, kind of the back and forth about what we would talk about, I said you know that I, I wanted to get your perspective on empowering lifelong learners, uh, um, you know, making lifelong learning a, a more effective practice. And, and I think as a, as a prelude to that, um, you know, I, I definitely want to touch on some of the concepts that uh, I think you're probably best known for at, at this point. And what I have in mind are things like showing your work and, um, and, and social learning. Could, for listeners who, you know, may not be as, uh, as well-versed in those concepts as, as you obviously are, can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what showing your work means and, and why that matters? Sure. I think, and I think I'll just, uh, let, let me say, start that by saying, I think that all of us have experienced the problem, the problems that can occur when people don't show their work well. We are great at writing things down step by step. We are great at quote unquote documenting <laughs> what mm. we do. The problem is very often what we are documenting about what we do is not really capturing how we get things done. I think that all of us have probably had the experience of having a coworker who diligently wrote down every single thing they do all day long. And when that person left, nobody could pick up where they left off. Right. Um, or they've retired or they've moved on. And we think we have what we need to pick that up. And, and we don't. I think all of us have had the situation of finding out after the fact that, you know, we really struggle to learn something or to execute a project. And then we find out somebody in another building already did it. Or somebody down the hall has a degree in that. I, I just think we've all probably had experiences where we haven't seen the dots around an organization connect very well. And I think we've all had situations where we're we're great at capturing explicit knowledge, but not very good at capturing tacit knowledge. And my mm -hmm. best example of that is anybody who has ever tried diligently to follow a recipe to the letter and have it not turn out. Right. That that was explicit information, but for some reason there's something something somewhere that they didn't write down, or you don't have the the uh, the um, underlying the background knowledge to make it work, or or something. So showing your work is just a matter of figuring out how we can make that tacit knowledge a little more explicit, and I think. We run into a tension between the human being and the organization, organizations, and, and I don't hear this phrase as much as I used to, but we used to talk a lot about intellectual property. Organizations believe that they, they, that they own discrete pieces of data in your head, and they can just extract that onto a spreadsheet somewhere and pull it back out bit by bit when they need it. And, you know, really, work isn't like that most of the time. It's, it's messy, and it's not necessarily as sequential as we like to think. And, yeah, if you're assembling widgets for the ACME, widget company and you're putting part A on part B and putting on an assembly line, it is. But, you know, knowledge workers in particular, the reason we need knowledge workers is because they're good at exception handling. Mm. They know what to do the day that the, the 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 conveyor belt is broken or the day the parts didn't ship or the day half the staff is out on with a flu. So, you know, figuring out how we can better um, capture and share that kind of information um, is really one of the things I'm I'm about. And I worked for, you know, when I was with the state for years, I mean, I worked in a situation where like with prison guards or nursing staff, we had coverage issues when something went wrong. Um, when we had something that was just an exception to the policy and the staff didn't necessarily know what to do to make the exception. It's, it's you know, it's a challenge. So um, showing your work and making your work more visible is it's, it's one of the ways not to have to learn everything the hard way. 
it's one of the ways to extract the learning from the work rather than try to impose it on two. Am I making sense? Is that helpful, do you think, for your folks? Showing your work is one powerful approach to not having to learn things the hard way. Another is consistently leveraging the data produced from the learning experiences you offer. If you want help leveraging your data, check out our sponsor. Authentic Learning Labs is an e-learning company that offers products and services to help improve your current investments in education. One key product is Authentic Analytics, a dedicated suite of visualization reports that help analyze and predict the performance of education programs. Organizations use Authentic Analytics to easily scan through volumes of data in intuitive visuals, chart performance trends, and quickly spot opportunities, issues, and potential future needs. Find out more at leadinglearning.com authentic. And now back to the interview as Jeff and Jane discuss some approaches to sharing your work. Maybe if you could also address just some, some practical ways you do this. And, and it seems to me there's, there's sort of a range across which this can happen because, and you make the point in your book that this doesn't all have to be public, that a lot of times, you know, you're just going to be sharing it with a, a very discreet number of people. So could you talk a little bit about you know, if you're sharing with a small group, what's that like? And then if you get all the way up to sharing on, you know, Instagram or Facebook, what's, what's that like, you know? Well, first, first of all, you're right. It, it may be, there are things that we do that we may not tell anyone, right? There are things that you might just tell your boss or things you might tell your immediate work unit. There are things that you might be willing to share with your public facing customers, with your clients, with the public at large, with your students, uh, there might be things you're willing to put on Instagram or Twitter. I think it, it kind of expands expands out. And my favorite example of that, actually, there was a fellow some years ago, there was a middle school teacher who wanted to work with, with his kids, eight, like eighth graders, to do an RSA style video. You know, the video where there's a hand writing mm-hmm. as someone is narrating. They were doing this, I think it was about the Louisiana Purchase. And Bless his heart, as we say in the South, this teacher documented every moment of that. He took pictures of how you need to set up the equipment. He wrote about lessons learned. He said, I really did not build in enough time for rehearsal. We needed to practice this small before we tried to do it large. This, and he, he offers help to the next person who tries to do it. And, and my question about that is, well, who would be interested in that? Mm. And people will say, well, other teachers at the school. And that's true. Well, who else would be interested in that? And then the conversation is usually, well, teachers anywhere. And then the conversation turns to who else makes these kinds of videos? And then the answer is, well, pretty much every, everybody in this business wants to, right, knows how to do it. So, you know, maybe that's worth just sharing with his immediate people. But if we blur out the faces of the kids in the pictures, why can't that be public? Right, right. So it's thinking, having that mindset you know, of thinking about who's, who can benefit from this. Um, who, who is my audience? And I think sometimes we underestimate ourselves. I think that, yeah, this guy probably felt like there'd be eight other middle school teachers who'd be interested in this. But the truth is a lot of people were interested in how he did it, including setting up the recording equipment. That isn't specific to his school or to eighth graders or to the Louisiana Purchase. So thinking, bigger. And I think, um, you know, the other thing that I have seen across my career and the topic changed over the years or the, the issue changed over the years, people often take an idea like this and approach it as if it's a brand new trip to Mars. You know, look at what you already have in place. Look at, at systems that we have that aren't very effective. For instance, things like weekly staff meetings where everybody goes around in a circle and talks about what they did last week. Um, 
is that really useful? Would it be more useful to talk instead about this was the biggest problem I had last week? This was a problem in how I solved it last week. Mm -hmm. This is a challenge I've run into this week. Let me show you how I fix this. Here's an exception. What What is really more useful? Um, where I used to work, we, we would occasionally, depending on who the governor was, we would have HR managers who would want activity reports. And, uh, Basically, people would block out time on their calendars to fill out, these are the calls I made, these are the things I did, these are the da-da-da, and, and, and they went somewhere into a black hole. One day, I had done a, um, a webinar on being a more effective virtual classroom trainer, and at the end, rather than do the smile sheet, circle some circles, right, uh, circle numbers, I, I um, just used a whiteboard activity where I said, it's called geometric something, and I said, you know, tell me write on the whiteboard something that you're taking away from this that's squared with something that you knew or something that completed a circle that you didn't quite understand, you know, that kind of thing. And I took a screenshot of it and I dropped it into the activity report and I nearly caused the collapse of democracy. <laughs> I understand they had to have a meeting about Jane putting pictures <laughs> in the activity report, which of course makes, delights me. But, but, you know, then, so they had a much better understanding of what I did in this class and who was there and what they learned than me saying, I did this evaluation and I had a 4.7 overall That's score from, from my people. But then I took that screenshot and I, I took the WebEx will let you have, you know, it has an arrow with the person's name on it. And I whited out the last names and I took a screenshot and I tweeted it. So now it's a marketing thing, right? Oh, Jane's doing this. Oh, people were interested. Oh, look at this way of getting evaluation data. So I'm showing my work. I'm sort of changing the existing method of doing that. Mm -hmm. I'm able to expand my reach a little bit. Um, so, so, you know, just, just finding another way to sort yeah. of maybe use what we already have. You know, one of the things that hospitals do, especially teaching hospitals, they have what they call M&M conferences and people who watch Grey's Anatomy will know this, but um, every now and again, the doctors get into a room and it's not televised. It's not broadcast. They get into a room and they talk about some interesting cases over the past few months, typically one where someone has died, hence morbidity and mortality. Mm -hmm. And the doctors talk about these were my assumptions. These were the actions I took. The patient died anyway. This is what I would do next time. I don't understand why doctors can go into a room and do that and the rest of us can't. Uh, it's a great, great point. It just doesn't, uh, does not happen often enough. We often reference uh, David Garvin's concept of uh, after-action reviews uh, here, which can, you know, can, can help spark that kind of thing. And it sounds like, I mean, from what you, you've said uh, so far, that you know, just, just trying to be conscious and intentional about what, what you've actually done that's useful um, so not, not just your activity, but what's, what's useful about it, who can it benefit? And then, you know, it seems from that, then thinking really about how you did it. And I don't know if you use this kind of language at all in, in your book, I can't remember, but kind of bringing that sort of beginner's mindset to it, um, to, to, to help people who haven't done it before really go through the right process to, to, to get that benefit that you can offer. Yeah, I do. But I also try really hard not to make this sound 
difficult. Mm. Not to make it sound like it's a lot more work and it's more painful. Taking a screenshot as you go, taking a photo when you fix the thing, um, making a note about something. And I think to be to be even clearer about it, it's not always about helping somebody else. I mean, how many times have you had to learn to do some little weird thing in PowerPoint or how many times have you had to do a task once a year and then you have to teach yourself again the next day? Yeah, that's a fantastic you know, doing point. It and yeah. Saving your own stuff. So here's the deal. When you're doing that anyway, don't save it to your C drive. Right. You know, put it somewhere else. Give it a good label. Give it a good, you know, title. Make it searchable. Um, some other simple things you can do is to start linking to things and not attaching. Um, email is going to be the mm. undoing of this planet. I'm convinced <laughs> of it. Well, you know, you, you send, you ask me for something. I send, I attach a Word doc and send it to you. And that's the conversation dies. And if yeah. one of us leaves the company, they delete my account. That, and then it's gone forever. You know, put it somewhere. Teach people how to look for things and find them within your own organization. That is, that is, that is so true. I, and I keep trying to get better about that myself, uh, you know, using a tool like Digo or something like that to, to help put some things out there where other people right. can access it. So arguably one of the more famous cases of this actually came out of the uh, 80s with a case. Julian Orr's dissertation was about Xerox repair people. I'm sorry, copier repair people mm. yeah. <laughs> in we'll California. We'll have to bleep that um, out now. <laughs> who ultimately had um, these repair people, these guys were having to basically whittle a shem for a tray that was was wobbly in machines they were repairing and they would have, they would get together after lunch and at dinner and, and stuff after dinner and lunch and stuff to talk about the things that they had done that day that basically were completely outside the realm of usual, <laughs> usual performance. Mm. Um, and so they were afraid if management found out they'd get into trouble for circumventing manuals, but they're the guys out in the field who have people in their faces yelling about their machines, not working right. Owners demanding a response right now. So, you know, how can we help facilitate that problem if they had been able to take pictures or video of what was going wrong? Because here's the deal. The engineers back at the factory have these perfect, pristine machines that were built and have never been kicked or sworn out or had coffee porn in them, right? Right. Right. <laughs> and so these guys out in the field are dealing with real people and real machines. You know, if we had been able to say, this is what's going on. Here's a picture. This is how I'm fixing it. What is management? You know, if, if we had been able to facilitate that better and we have technology now for that, that's probably just something that needs to be in-house between the people who work on the machines. It doesn't need to be, you know, on, on Twitter where everybody who owns a machine can be talking about the problem with it. Right. So you need to decide where you're going to put stuff. Um, but, but that's a really good example of where we've got workers who are enacting a solution and the people back at the home office don't know anything about it. And how can we capture and, and share what they're doing? How can we capture the tacit knowledge of the guy in front of the children's hospital who knows how to make a cool elephant topiary? You know, this this leads to an area that I definitely wanted to be sure to, to probe here. It goes back to this idea of, you know, empowering lifelong learners, empowering lifelong learning. I mean, basically, we need more of this going on. And the the, the people, for the most part, who, who would be listening to this podcast, um, you know, they're going to be delivering continuing education, professional development, lifelong learning type experiences. They tend to be serving a, you know, particular field or profession. And so they're they're helping individual learners but they're also trying to elevate that field or profession, you know, help it to grow and develop. And it, it seems like, you know, it's one thing to get somebody into a seminar or into a conference session. That's great, you know, for that period of time that you're able to work with them uh, as a learner. But then to, 
to empower those people to have the, the kind of mindset, the, the, the kind of skill set that you're describing around showing their work, around sharing their, their work. Um, how do, do you have suggestions for how to make that happen? Yeah, but can I let me say this first? Let me say this first. Sure. I find it fascinating that millions and millions and millions of people a day share photographs online. Mm. But they don't think this. I find it fascinating that YouTube, I would bet 70 or 80% of the YouTube videos available are about how I did something. Right. How I fixed the toilet, how I patched the drywall, right. how I played the intro to Stairway to Heaven. And yet when we're at work, we don't think to do it. Right. I think that um, there are some culture issues there. I think that um, there's a perception that people are wasting time if they're making a video of how I did this thing. I think there's, uh, you have situations where employees are rewarded for hoarding information. Mm-hmm. We have situations where employees are rewarded for, um, for comp- competing with each other. You know, I know of a situation where an organization tried to get the salespeople to share, um, share their presentations and, you know, talk about how they overcame their biggest objections and they didn't want to do it. Competition with the other salespeople. Yeah. Because who gets the trip? Yeah, exactly. And so there, there are culture things that don't have a thing to do with how we, how the, why these learners are failing. But I think the other thing is, is just helping people stop and think and be a little more mindful and, and, and to reflect a little bit more. We are not very good at reflective practice. Mm-hmm. We tend to, we're busy and we finish something and we just move on to the next thing. If you could just take a break and say, take a breath and just say, well, if I did that again tomorrow, what would I do differently? What went well with that? What, what went badly with that? Did I have to teach myself something? And I think uh, to your point about learning and development people, we are really good at creating and pushing out content and information. We, we are not as good about soliciting that. I think just saying, how did you do that? Can you teach me how to do that? How long did it take to learn that? What was the hardest thing about that? Can you tell me more about, can you teach it to me? I think that we would be able to get a lot more information about where people are struggling and about how we could help them make what they're working on a little more explicit. And the thing is, as T&D people, we often have access to everybody in an organization from management all the way down. We often know who our kind of superstar learners are and how, how they are doing things. So figuring out how we can do that, making sure they understand how to use tools and how to share if we're asking them to make videos of the little, the little things they repair. Well, that's great. Do they know what file format we need it in and where to put it when they've saved it and what to call it so we can find it? Maybe that's something we need to help with is, you know, it'd be great if you take a picture and you could put it here. Now, if we could have a company Instagram for that, fabulous, but that's not realistic for a lot of things. We may have a company SharePoint (laughs) for that, right? Um, So, so I think it's partly just helping people stop and think about, Maybe we use the L word too much. I think that that those of us in this business talk about people learning with a capital L Mm -hmm. when most of the time during the day, people think about solving a problem, fixing a thing, getting something done. You know, maybe we help them think in, in those terms, um, that would be helpful. But I also, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean sharing everything you do all day long and it doesn't necessarily require any technology. Like I said, it may just be changing the questions you ask in a staff meeting from everybody go around the room and talk about what you did last week to let's talk about the biggest challenge you had or the biggest satisfier you had or something unusual 
you know, just asking it um, a little bit different, I think, can can help a whole lot helping people surface that. I'll tell you what not to do. I presented this at an ATD meeting, a chapter meeting, I don't know, a year or two ago. And afterward, someone came up to me and said, we've told our people they have to present something every Tuesday, but they don't like that. I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> they don't like that. Is that, is that, is that a fact? So, you know, I think just how did you do that? I'll tell you um, another thing to do that, that L&D can do or that we can do. Uh, Cheesecake Factory does a really good job with this. You know, Cheesecake Factory, the chain has like a 50-page menu, and they have these really complex, like, architectural salads and stuff with things that are, you know, balanced on prisms and (laughs) what have you. Um, They go around, they identify the employees who seem to be better at some of these things, and they go video them, Mm. and they upload that to the company intranet. That's good. So there, and there are several payoffs there. You can capture, see, it used to be, we would find out who was good at that. We would go watch them. And then we'd go back to the home office and make a video in a studio with a trainer or an actor, right? Mm-hmm. We wouldn't use real, <laughs> real people. So, you know, they're, they're acknowledging, they're finding the surfacing the talent in their organization. They are recognizing that talent. They are showcasing people to their peers. They're letting it be known that they notice when people do good work. I mean, there's a whole lot of payoff there for Cheesecake Factory and it is internal. I mean, it's internal to other employees. So, you know, to answer your question of when do you put it on Instagram, I guess that they don't want the competition seeing how to decorate that cake or how to, you know, cook that steak this way every time. But, um, but, but you know, there's a lot we can do to s- support this and, and help. Another thing that I don't want to get lost in the conversation, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I worked, when I was with state government, about of our third of our workforce was what I would call low literacy. Um, maybe a high school diploma, often not. Um, towards the last 10 years or so, we increasingly had people who, for whom English was not their first language. They may not be terribly literate in that first language. I find that those people get left out of a whole lot of our conversations. We have a lot of conversations about people with college degrees who sit at desks Mm -hmm. and are good writers. Um, we have wonderful tools now where people can just take a picture. Um, I have heard from workers who say that they use text to voice on their phones so that they can message their kids and their kids don't know they can't read. And I want to be really clear that that's not a state government thing. Housekeepers, food service workers, groundskeepers, many of us have organizations with some level of this population. And I think that we could use some of these approaches to help better serve them than having them sit down and try to read a tutorial that's beyond their comprehension, right? Um, so, so you know, figuring out how we can draw them into this and use tools that are comfortable for them that don't involve just sitting down writing out, you know, the history of my life can be useful and it can help us understand how to do this without it being so onerous. Well, there's a lot in there for um, for yes. re- reflection, uh, which we definitely encourage folks to do. A couple of things I, I picked out um, as, as major themes, or you know, first of all, keep it simple. You know, this doesn't have to be complicated, and and I, and I felt like underlying that um, visual is all, often the simplest way to to go, and keeping that in mind. And then I think also, you know, for those of us who are in the position to create or facilitate learning experiences, to make sure. We're being mindful about this as a practice, and as you said, getting others to to teach us and to t- you know take advantage of of real life more than you know staged training, but then helping the people we're serving whenever we can. And and you know, for this audience, it might be at a conference, you know, uh, or in a in a webinar, 
help them be mindful of this approach to, as you said, the, the L word, the, the, the capital L word, but, but be careful about the language and don't cram it down people's throats because it shouldn't be something onerous. It's you know, something people tend to do anyway. It's just helping them to be a little bit more conscious and a little bit more intentional uh, about it. Um, so thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I know that's um, an, an incredibly helpful to listeners. And as we're as we're starting to, to, to wind down here, I want to um, actually want to turn the, the spotlight on you uh, a little bit um, to, to wrap up. And, uh, you know, listeners know that there's a question that we, we ask of all interviewees at, at the end of uh, our episodes. And that is, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Uh I have one more thing to say before I answer that. <laughs> all right, by, by all um, means. I, I just want to say, uh, th this is difficult to describe via audio. It, 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 it really, I think, understanding what I talk about when I talk about showing your work. The whole showing your work, in, yeah, yeah. It will make more sense if you could see some visual examples. And I have amassed dozens of examples at a Pinterest board that I would, uh, I'll get you the link for that. And I'd like for you to share that with your folks, please. I think that that will help shed some light on the kinds of things we're talking about and, and the benefits to to the organization, to the individual, to um, our discipline or our profession. So I'll get that to you and I and invite yeah, we'll, we'll definitely share that. I'm familiar okay. with that uh, that Pinterest okay. board and definitely something that listeners should okay. check out. All right. As far as the as far as the learning thing, as the the final question, I um I have several examples, but the the one I really would like for your listeners to hear. Can I can I tell that one? I don't know that it's completely on topic, but it's not way off. Can I tell? Can I tell yeah, you, this one? You may um, you may share. With whatever you like. Okay. My husband, my husband. Well, this is, I think that one of the things you learn as you get older is that you often have to keep learning the same thing over and over, right? Mm, you, amen. you know, it's not always new learning. It's like, oh yeah, I kind of knew that. Um, but I think this is important for people who are in this, in this business. My husband had, um, brain surgery five years ago. I've written about it. It's, it's, he's okay. It's fine. He, um, but it left him with a bit, a bit of a balance problem. He's not terribly unsteady on his feet, but particularly the year after surgery, he used uh, walking sticks. He had a walker for a little while. And one of the things that at Duke hospital where we, we live near there, that's where he had the surgery is that everywhere you look, there are signs about fall risks. There are signs about being safe. There are signs about using handrails. And whenever they they got to look at him whenever we went through the door they would slap a big yellow fall risk bracelet on him and he hated he hated it <laughs> but if they see that you're at all unsteady on your feet if they see somebody with a cane or some assisted device they'll slap one of these bracelets on you and so um I was aware of this because, you know, I'd been doing a lot of safety training. I was working for the state. It's all we did was compliance stuff, right? So I was, I was peripherally aware of this, and I had noticed how much media I saw about it. And I know that he didn't like the bracelet. But one day, we were coming down a hallway and happened to meet our doctor, who was walking our way in her white coat with a, a clipboard. And we were near, like, a water dispenser that had dripped on the floor, and she saw it and she handed me her clipboard and said, could you just stay here and watch this for a minute? She went and got paper towels and came back and cleaned it up. This is a neuro, neurosurgeon. Right. She didn't call for a lesser mortal, right? <laughs> she didn't yell for housekeeping. She didn't ask somebody else to do it. She didn't put up a note or put up a wet floor sign. She went and got paper towels and cleaned it up. 
And that's a culture change, mm. right? That's huge. So when I was writing about this, I tried to hunt down who in the training office had been responsible. And Duke's a big place. They got the university, they got the hospital. They're, everything is huge and it's hard to find exactly who. But I did track down the office that had handled this and I found one of the trainers who had been responsible for it. And honestly, Jeff, I heard her voice crack. She had tears. <laughs> and she said, she said, I'm so glad somebody noticed this. It only took us seven years. Wow. And I think that's important for those of us in this business. We talk a whole lot about rollouts mm-hmm. and launches and initiatives. And, you know, stuff happens for six months. And when it doesn't get an uptake, we move on to the next thing. Our management gets excited about something else. You know, there's shiny objects. There's flavor of the month. And I think it's just really important to remember when we talk about sweeping behavior change across a workforce, when we talk about a culture change, that it's not going to happen in two or three months or via a rollout or via a big, splashy launch. I mean, it takes a long time to um, to turn the boat, right? So that would be what I would like to leave learners with, or your uh, your uh, listeners with. Are you good with that, or do you want something else? No, that's fantastic. I think it's it's <laughs> so so important for all of us to realize that uh, we really have to be playing the the long game here. I mean, you can get you can get the short wins, you, you know, and and those are, are great to get when you can get them. But uh, like you said, I mean, if you're really going to change. A, a field, a profession, if you're going to change somebody's life, um, that, that just, you know, learning takes time, change takes time, it takes effort, and, and we have to realize that. And while it is compliancy, um, you know, there's, no, there's nothing worse that can happen to a craniotomy patient than to have a fall. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing worse. So, and as far as I know, nobody, nobody did. And I know mine never did. So, you know, trying, trying to keep the end in mind, trying to remember that it's not just about meeting the regulation. It's not just about somebody signing the training. It's about really making a difference for someone somewhere, even though you may not see it. I think that that is critical. Um, and it does happen, but really, I thought, I, I think she almost cried. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I understand that feeling. I mean, I, that's, that's wonderful for her. And it's, it's great to hear about, a doctor doing that and actually having had that impact. So I think, I think that's a fantastic uh, learning experience story to, to end on. And this is uh, as a, as it always is a, you know, a great conversation. Uh, it's always so good to catch up with you, Jane. I want to make sure our listeners are able to, you know, catch up with you and then get more from you. Where, where are some of the best places to go for them to, you know, follow you to find out more about your work? I am always on Twitter. So it's at Jane Bozarth. That's my full name, at Jane Bozarth. I do a good deal of writing for Learning Solutions Magazine. I have a column first Tuesday of every month. I uh, have a monthly uh, research reports coming out of the e-learning guild that's elearningguild.com but i'm on twitter all the time you can usually if you need me that's usually where where i'll turn, I, I, where I'll that, turn up i can i can vouch for that that is definitely true so uh, yeah um, go, and, go find jane and on i'll go ahead and and while we're at it i will go ahead and plug uh, learn chat every thursday evening 8 30 p.m uh, eastern time 5 30 p.m pacific time we are now in our 10th year and we talk about how people learn we try to keep it from being uh, for lack of a better term, trainer chat. We don't talk about markers and icebreakers. Mm. We talk about how we learn, how people learn, how we stay motivated to learn, what helps us learn. So uh, that is an open Twitter chat every Thursday evening from 8.30, and it's moderated by, uh, I'm involved, Tracy Parrish uh, is involved, David Kelly is involved. We have different moderators that come and go over time, but we're the ones that have been pretty stable. So we invite anyone who wants to chat some more to join us there. 
Well, that's that's amazing. That's been going yes. on for ten years. We will we'll be sure to link link to that and to to everything you just referenced, and also to a, a, a range of other things that have come up in this conversation. Those will all be in the show notes for those episode for this episode. Uh, uh, regular listeners know those show notes are very valuable, and if it's your first time listening, do make sure you check them out. Jane, uh, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for being a guest on Leading Learning. Sure. Thank you, sir. Thanks as always for having me and uh, you have a happy rest of uh, 2019. That concludes the interview with Jane Bozarth. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 202. And the show notes will include those two reflection questions that we mentioned at the outset. First, how is your learning business addressing issues like learning styles, personality inventories, and generational differences? And to what extent are your conversations and actions truly evidence-based? And second, to what extent is showing your work a common practice in your organization and among the learners you serve? And what value might come from making showing your work a more widely embraced practice? And what are some initial steps you might take to make it happen? And when you check out those show notes, you're also going to see the various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, if you want to come back and get those reflection questions week after week to help your learning, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe. It helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. To do that, you can go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That will put you in the right place. Jeff and I personally appreciate your rating and a review, but even more importantly, those reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And we want to thank MC Johnson for her review of Leading Learning, in which she writes, the combination of nuts and bolts advice and introductions to big picture strategy and knowledge management concepts has provided me with a foundation for developing a new online education program and sometimes a lens through which to view politics, social issues, and intellectual life. Thanks, Salisa and Jeff. Yes, we are very grateful for that review and we'd be grateful as well if you would check out our sponsors for this quarter. Visit Authentic Learning Labs at leadinglearning.com authentic and find out more about CompartNers at leadinglearning.com slash CompartNers. Finally, please do tell others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, and you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash learning. And of course, you can share us there um, and, uh, and, and spread the word with all of your network on Facebook. But however you do it, please spread the word about Leading Learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.